1: Uh, once again, this transmission is coming to you live via my little studio beneath the stairs up in Thornhill, Ontario. And uh, Ian, my fine rockabilly friend, is behind the big audio board back in Liberty Village. Ryan is running our YouTube live stream from his lair in deepest, darkest East York. And once again, Albert is on assignment, this time in Jordan, attempting to negotiate a long-lasting Mideast peace. We wish him Godspeed. Author researcher John Kerner is here to blow the lid off the JFK Jr. plane crash. Hard to imagine it will be 20 years next July, and John will be here for the full two hours, and we'll open up the phone lines in hour two to take questions and comments as John lays out his compelling evidence, as I say, John F. Kennedy Jr. What a resume. What a future he had. A a lawyer, a journalist, a magazine publisher, of course, the son of President John F. Kennedy. And it was on the evening of July 16th, 1999. He died when the airplane he was flying crashed into the Atlantic Ocean, about seven and a half miles west of Martha's Vineyard. And his wife, uh, Carolyn Bessette, and sister-in-law, Lauren Bessette, were also on board and died. Uh, It was a, a Piper Saratoga light aircraft. It departed from New Jersey's Essex County Airport, and its intended route was along the coastline of Connecticut and across Rhode Island Sound to Martha's Vineyard Airport. Of course, he didn't make it. And for the last nearly 20 years, most of us, many of us, have operated under the assumption it was an accident, a simple plane accident, pilot error, poor visibility, You've heard all of the arguments. Well, John Kerner is about to unravel those. He's an adjunct professor of American history at Erie Community College and the founder of Paranormal Walks. He's appeared on America's Book of Secrets on the History Channel and William Shatner's Weird or What on the Discovery Channel. John has an M.A., in American history from the State University of New York College at Brockport and a BA in communications journalism from St. John Fisher College. And his uh, first book was Why the CIA Killed JFK and Malcolm X, The Secret Drug Trade in Laos. And his new one is Exploding the Truth, The JFK Jr. Assassination. John Kerner, welcome back to The Conspiracy Show. How are you, my friend?
0: I'm doing great, Richard. It's so nice to hear from you again.
1: Likewise. So this book is being heralded as the first serious work on JFK Jr.'s death. The first. Why did it take, do you suppose, 20 years, nearly 20 years for someone to heavily research and write this? You would think, you know, when when a celebrity dies, Mm -hmm. a public figure, these days, within weeks, you see that book at the checkout counter at the grocery store. No one touched this for 20 years until you. Why?
0: I think that there is a lot of fear around conspiracy theories nowadays that you're going to be labeled some kind of a crack for going to this, especially if you're a mainstream historian like myself and teach history. That if you're in the mainstream, you might be labeled as someone that doesn't know what they're talking about. So to look at an event like this, like I do, with logic and facts, it takes a lot of courage Another thing to think about too, it took several years for JFK assassination researchers to be accepted that they're in, they're doing, talking about things back in the late 1960s that weren't accepted for many, many years. Witnesses were killed for that assassination too. So there's there's a lot of fear around this stuff. And I think it takes people time to accept the reality that there is more going on here than we were led to believe.
1: My next question is about you and your personal safety. I don't say that in a flippant or cavalier way, because you published your book on JFK and Malcolm X, what, 2014, I think, that came out. That was right. And just before it came out, like on the eve of its publication, you became not just a little bit ill, you almost died.
0: I did. I was completely healthy, and then I spent about six months in hospital going through what was a different types of diseases, they couldn't figure out what it really was, and they kept asking me, had I visited Southeast Asia, and I had never been there, and they said, whatever you got, only come from there, and it looked like someone had poisoned you, and you really should be dead, so I went through that for about six months, and I lost 45 pounds, I pretty much was on death's door right when that book came out, and... I'm there. My family said that there were some Black Hawk helicopters that were flying over the house sometimes. It was a very strange time for me when that book came out. And we all probably know the story of Gary Webb, the reporter yes. for the San Jose Mercury News, who was found with two gunshots to the head when he, after he was reporting on the very same thing I was reporting on, the connections of the drug trade in Laos. In that case, it was South America, but my case was with Southeast Asia. He paid the ultimate price too.
1: So, was there any trepidation uh, on on your part, or maybe your family's part? On like, John, are you really sure you want to tackle this?
0: Yeah, they actually asked me not to write about this. My family did not want to write this book. I felt I had to write the book. I felt compelled to do it. In fact, to put in the introduction. This might be my last book. Um, I I don't know if I'm going to, you know, what's going to happen to me. Um, I'm willing to take the risk, though, because I think it's so important. The truth needs to be told.
1: In researching this book, and we'll get into the timeline, of course, over the course of the next uh, two hours and lay out the evidence and sort of dismiss a lot of the prosaic explanations for this plane crash. And you do it so beautifully in Exploding the Truth. But was it difficult to get people to speak up about this when you went to, for example, uh, I believe it was the senior editor at George magazine? Were they open to speaking to you? Were they anxious to speak or were they frightened?
0: I had a lot of people that were not too willing to speak with me, but I kept persisting. I used what I could find with published reports, the National Archives, the NTSB reports. I tried to contact the witnesses that saw the explosion. I talk about in the book the resistance I encountered. Just getting microfilm was hard to get from people in and around Martha's Vineyard. They're they, they very closed off to this and scared about it. And I think with good reason, because as we talked about with other assassinations, witnesses have paid the ultimate price for even talking about this. Look at, for example, Nina Rhodes-Hughes, who just came out a few years ago and kept her mouth shut because she thought she'd be killed, too, because she, of course, saw a second gunman at the RK assassination. And she finally said the truth's got to be told. She saw another gunman. No more cover-ups. So there's a conspiracy of silence, you probably could say, witnesses. And I saw the same thing here, too.
1: John Kerner, the author of Exploding the Truth, the JFK Jr. Assassination. All right, take us back to July 16th, 1999, the evening of July 16th, and um, just sort of walk us through the events.
0: Yeah, this was supposed to be a very wonderful weekend for the Kennedy family. This was Roy Kennedy's wedding they're heading up there to celebrate this. It was strange because 30 years earlier, that was when Chepa had taken place at the same spot, Frederick Kennedy, that horrible tragedy that took place with his, uh, with his family there. So usually they took that time to do this. But anyway, that was when they planned this wedding for Rory Kennedy. And he was taking off from New Jersey. He took off at 8.39 p.m. with his wife, Caroline, and his sister-in-law, Lauren Bissette, And then at precisely 9.39 p.m., he calls in to the Vineyard Airport and tells them that he's about to land. And it's such a key thing to say this, because if there was any distress with himself or the airplane, he would have said so right then. He did not. And the official version of the NTSB report, it says at that point in time, he was suffering from what they call spatial disorientation. And if he was suffering from that, he would have said something at that point in time, which he did not. He saying he's about to land, things are okay, all is good with the aircraft. Also, Edward Meyer, who was appointed by the NTSB to investigate the conditions that night, issued a report about a few weeks later, and he said the conditions that night over the vineyard were completely fine. There was nothing that could have caused spatial disorientation. So the call at 939 the other reports indicate just the opposite, in fact.
1: So about 20 to 10, he crashes basically nose first into the Atlantic Ocean, correct?
0: Well, we can make this point, too. So Jim Mars is pointing this out, too. He investigated the, the assassination, too. And it was obvious in those around the area, too. If an airplane like that crashed as the NTSB said it did, nose down, then the luggage, the bodies, the parts of the aircraft would be in one place. That was not the case. The Navy and the CIA, they sealed off 14 nautical miles around that area to recover everything. They found luggage, sneakers, wheels, bodies all over that place. So what that indicates is something really quite important. It indicates that the cabin was breached inside from an explosion, causing a large debris, debris field around the area. If there was no explosion, it comes down in one spot. There's no need to seal off that large area. You wouldn't find all those debris of the large field.
1: How, how large was the debris field on the uh, on the ocean floor?
0: 14 nautical miles.
1: Large area. The
0: de- from the,
1: the debris field off. was 14 nautical miles long?
0: Yes. So it was a massive explosion. And again, as I put in the book, there were three witnesses on the ground there that saw just that in the sky. They saw two things. So they, well, they saw the flash of light, and they heard an explosion, one of whom was this man named Victor Pravanic, who was talked about in this book called The Day John Died. He was documenting that book. He talked about this with that author. And he said that he saw an explosion. He was also reported in the New York Post. And he was looking at, he was fishing that night. He'd been fishing for a number of years in that same spot. So he looked up at the sky, saw an explosion, heard the sound, and he was right there.
1: Absolutely um, amazing. You know, if you go on Wikipedia and you search the JFK Jr. crash, it'll tell you things like poor visibility. It'll say uh, a debris field of about 120 feet. Uh, and yet we are hearing, no, 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 14 nautical miles. All right, John, stay put. We'll take a quick timeout, come back, and continue uh, to drill down on the JFK Jr. assassination. John Kerner, my guest, back with more in a moment. Stay with us. The truth will set you free, but first it will really tick you off. You're listening to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett. Hey, welcome back. John Turner is with us. Exploding the truth, the JFK Jr. assassination. We're talking about a debris field here, 14 nautical miles along the floor. How were you able to verify that? How do we know? Is that in the public record?
0: What ends up happening here is after the explosion takes place, ABC News, Peter Jennings, on the air, is getting calls from local residents around the area at Gaze Head, for example, at the Vineyard. And they're saying a star north is in some places. near north of the Vineyard, too, several miles up. They're finding things. The local sheriff even calls in and says he's found Lauren of luggage on the beach. So this is coming right from people that were on the ground calling in local news people, like even ABC News, on the day after the the explosion, on the 17th of July.
1: Right. Now, here's the funny thing. They don't recover the bodies for two days. I mean, what took them so long?
0: Right. It's very unusual because uh, what ends up happening here is it gives us a chance to talk about the locator beacon. So at 2.15 a.m., ABC News, Peter Jennings reports at 2.15 a.m. on July 17th, the Navy claims that they heard a rescue beacon. And they said initially that it was the Pepper of Saratoga, which obviously it would be. But then they say, hang on a second, it's not Pepper of Saratoga. It's a downed Navy military aircraft instead, which kind of just blows your mind. And at that point in time, ABC News, NBC News just dropped the story. I don't ask some obvious questions, which I ask in the book. If it's a down Navy military aircraft, who died in the crash? Did it collide with JFK's plane? Where are the bodies? And how could they confuse that with the other rescue beacon? Because they're two completely different sounds. The Pepper of Saratoga's rescue beacon is a steady, shrill sound. And a Navy aircraft is a much more like a foghorn. You can't confuse them. So it seems like they probably were lying about that—that that they did, they actually did find the of Aerotoga at 2:15 a.m. And like you were saying, you need time to make it look like it was an accident, not an explosion, which is why they did that.
1: Now the other the other obvious question is: if there was a Navy plane downed, why wasn't it reported missing? Why wasn't that on the news?
0: Right. I mean, I mean, very hard to to not have the families talk about whether pilot had died, for example. How do you cover that up? It just doesn't make any sense. So it would have to be the Pepper Saratoga's rescue beacon that they found. And it
1: just makes so this sense. was a diversion to delay for time so that they could do what?
0: So they could make it look like it was an accident, that, that where the bodies were just in one spot, cover recover as much debris as they could, maybe even switch out the bodies so it didn't look like they had been marred from an explosion. They needed time to do this, and it was done by the Navy and the CIA, the two teams that were in there doing that, only them. Media was not allowed in, even the Kennedy family was not allowed in. Just those two entities, that's it.
1: Who was the first to reach out to the Kennedys to let them know?
0: Well, President Clinton was trying to get information to Teddy Kennedy. Back at Hyannisport, they were in a media blackout, too. So again, like you said, it took many days for anyone to realize what had really happened there. And during those two days, all kinds of myths start to explode in the media. One big myth was that JFK Jr. was a, was a bad pilot. He was a reckless pilot, that he was dangerous, and that was not even close to the truth. If you look at all the people that trained with him, they said he was meticulous. Ralph Howard, for example, one of his flight instructors said he loved flying because it gave him a sense of peace, for example. He had 17 years in the cockpit. We could point this out, too. He, he did that same flight five times at night with no flight instructor. He also had another flight instructor say that his name was Harold uh, Anderson, that he, one time he actually did a test with a hood on and did everything completely accurate with a hood on. So... During that two days, it was used to destroy his reputation, which later on was not even true. So it was a a bad couple days there.
1: How many hours of flight experience total did he have? Do we know?
0: I think it was over 700 flight hours going back to 1982, at the very least. It's 17 years. And the main thing we can also point out, this is from the NTSB report itself, is he did that same flight from New Jersey to Martha's Vineyard at night with no flight instructor. He use autopilot, he passed instrument training tests, and he knew what to do. So we also know, as I was saying, he makes that call in at 9.39 p.m. after one hour of flights, and if anything was wrong, he would have told the airport at that point in time that he was suffering disorientation, there were some problems with the aircraft, none of that was ever reported. So you have this two days where he's, his reputation is being destroyed during that time, which is not even true.
1: So he was rated to fly instrument, Mm -hmm. under instrument conditions, right?
0: Right. And there's also this myth put forward, too, that there was this flight instructor that allegedly, just before the aircraft took off, went up to him and asked to fly with him. And the NTSB report talks about this, but never names this person, curiously enough. And I think if this person did exist, JFK might not have trusted him was very suspicious this guy shows up who is this person why is he here and i don't know if this person who he was where he was what he was doing what his motivation was but he never was named and the media never pursues this either to find out this guy who cheated death it could have been on the airplane and died with all the other members of the family but never was named was a very strange thing happened there with this mysterious flight instructor too
1: when they talk about special disorientation even if the weather is clear, but it's because it's dark, with the water below, you've got this featureless, not a landscape, obviously, it's water, mm-hmm. but it's featureless. Could that cause spatial disorientation, even in an experienced pilot?
0: I suppose it's possible, but we can also point out a couple of different things. It's such a key thing to point out that one minute before the explosion, he calls in to the, the, air, the Marthas-Beneron Airport, he says he's about to land. He's on approach. If he was suffering from that at that point in time, he would have said something about it. He w- he didn't make a distress call. He was ready to land. So it's possible, yes, but not based on the evidence. We also can point out, he, as I said, he made the same flight at night with the same conditions. He was used to seeing that horizon already five different times.
1: It's also been suggested there there was a possibility that he may have been distracted uh, that he was flying in the same vicinity as American Airline Flight 1484, which I guess was also on approach to Westchester County uh, Airport, and that the traffic collision avoidance system on the uh, on the American Airlines flight actually sounded. So is it possible that that may have caused the crash?
0: It's possible. But again, we have to go back to the witnesses on the ground. We have three people who saw an explosion. We have Victor Burbanek. The lawyer from Pittsburgh, we have a member of the Martha's Vineyard Gazette who was on the beach who saw that. And a member of the Kennedy family was on the beach, too. They all saw in the sky an explosion and, and heard one, too. So it seems like if you add up the evidence here, that's what we're talking about. And another thing they, they, were, they were talking about, too, is that, well, maybe his leg was hurting him. He had broken his leg. It's just, I should say he fractured his leg when he was had this parasailing accident on um, Memorial Day weekend, last day of May in 1999. He had the cast taken off the previous Thursday morning, had the entire day of Thursday, the entire day of Friday to walk around on the leg. He went to a Yankees game, he worked out, and he stopped into a convenience store before he took off. He was asked by the, the checkout person, how's the leg doing? He says, the leg is feeling fine. He even took off with no incident, flew for an hour, so the leg was doing fine. So that's one more thing we can discount, too.
1: I'm not a pilot, obviously. I don't know to what extent you would use your feet. Do you use your feet when you fly a plane? Do you need to apply any pressure with your feet as you would, let's say, on a gas pedal or a brake pedal?
0: The research that I did, again, I'm not an expert either, it only is really needed on takeoff. And then after that, you can use autopilot, and that takes it over from there, which he knew how to do. And again, right. if, you did, if he did need to use his feet get back to the point. He did an hour of flights, calls in and precisely one hour into the flights, If anything was wrong, he would said something then. and He did not. He said we were on approach, ready to land, and then right then, the plane explodes.
1: Now, according to the official version, in quotations, the official version, both Kennedy and uh, his wife and sister-in-law were found strapped into their seats still in the fuselage. Uh... Do you have, I mean, if, if in fact there was an onboard explosion, uh, presumably what? They would be, they would be scattered. They would have, it'd be pretty gruesome, right? There'd be body parts scattered along the ocean floor. Right. Absolutely. So, what,
0: so this is why it's important to recognize that they sealed off 14 nautical miles. And for several days, we have no idea what they find. There's no chain of evidence because you have no media allowed in there, no Kennedy family, no independent people that could, that could independently verify what's found, make up anything they want. They can make up anything they want to with the report, because no one independently can verify their finding. What we do know from those around the area, though, as I was saying, is that they did find Lauren Bessette's luggage. They found some sneakers, some airplane parts over a large area, from that area around Martha's Vineyard, that's several miles away from where the explosion took place. So, as Jim Morris, as I said, pointed out, if it was, as they suggested, an accident, everything would be just in one spot. But it was not in one spot. It was over a large debris field.
1: When they recovered the bodies. Were the, the the Kennedy family, any anyone in the Kennedy family or the Besset family, allowed to view the bodies? Well, they had to identify them, all right.
0: Right, but again, not for several days. So it's possible that again, people, and the, people in the CIA they can obviously manipulate bodies. Did it with JFK, and it can be done with their experts. They can make it look like anything they want, and the point that should be made even if they're strapped into the cockpit that doesn't mean it wasn't an explosion perhaps the explosion took place on the other side of the aircraft we don't even know but because there's no one allowed in in the area and those allowed in the agency and the navy who had just lied about as i mentioned the rescue beacon they can't be trusted to what happens next they told this lie that they found the Piper Saratoga's rescue beacon, and they said, oh, no, it's one of our aircraft. And then no one pursued that obvious question, well, if it's one of your aircraft, where's the aircraft? Where's the pilot? Who died? Did it collide with JFK's plane? Where's the debris field for that one? No one right. asked those right. basic questions that need to be answered. And we're still asking the questions all these years later.
1: Uh, the bodies were taken to the county medical examiner's office by motorcade. Uh, where was that autopsy performed? Do we know? Uh,
0: it was performed in the, uh, in the Muppets Vineyard area. And the Kennedy family had the bodies cremated at sea. That's when taking place with the bodies. So there was no burial except for at sea.
1: And do we know uh, who performed the autopsy?
0: Well... The people that performed the autopsy were government-sponsored people. Jim Baker took over the investigation, too. So he was in charge of hiring people that did the autopsy, in, in charge of the investigation. Of course, for the Reagan administration, a key member, and friend of the Bush family. So he's in charge of all these decisions, and that's where all, the, all those decisions come from Jim Baker.
1: All right, we'll take another time out, uh, John, stay put. Uh, back with more of our discussion of JFK Jr., With John Kerner, right here on The Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. When in doubt, blame the government. You're listening to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. John Kerner is with us for the full two hours. The book is Exploding the Truth, the JFK Jr. assassination. It'll be 20 years next July. Uh, that he, his wife, and sister-in-law went down into the Atlantic Ocean off of Martha's Vineyard in their uh, Piper Saratoga plane. Uh, not a mere uh, plane accident due to pilot error, says John. There was a mid-air explosion. Uh, so we're talking assassination. Now, this is a short segment, so we'll get into this a little bit, and then we'll continue on. And just a reminder, top of the hour, we'll throw open the phone lines and take questions and comments, um, so one of the theories obviously that's been bandied about is that that John F. Kennedy jr. was thinking about running for the vacant Senate seat in New York, which would have uh, pitted him against Hillary Clinton. There she is again, uh, and that so all of a sudden the Clintons once again. Fall under suspicion, but you you spend the entire first chapter, uh, or I think it's maybe the first or the second chapter, right. uh, ex- ex- essentially exonerating the Clintons.
0: Yes, I think it's important to note that JFK Jr. was not going to run for the Senate. He had told his friend Gary Ginsburg, his business partner, that he was not interested in running for the Senate. He wanted to run for governor. There was much more his line of expertise, managing things, being governor. Clintons were very close to the Kennedys. So one of his friends also said he was too much of a gentleman to do this, too much, too honorable. It was just not for him to do. He was running governor for governor in 2002 and for president in 2004. So the Clintons um, were good friends of the Kennedy family. You might know a couple of different things kind of in the public record. Uh, president Clinton appointed... As ambassador to Ireland, Jean and Kennedy Smith, when the first year he was in administration. Also, Jackie Kennedy was a big early supporter of Bill Clinton when he ran for president in 1992, and JFK was the inspiration for Bill Clinton to become involved in politics when they met at the White House back in the early 1960s. So they're very close. And one other key thing too we can point out is that George magazine never published. A single word criticizing Bill Clinton during his administration, especially during the several different scandals that he had. In fact, during a key moment in time, um, JK Jr. sent a facts to the White House that said that he was a kid in the White House. He fit under the desk easily. Never could see an intern putting under the desk. It was just send this funny little fax to the president. So it was it was pretty clear the friendship was you know the key thing why he chose not to run against her. And, he had his sights set on running for governor
1: the the governorship of new york is interesting because that is uh has been sort of a a, a path to the white house for many presidents including of course teddy roosevelt and uh and then his his uh, distant cousin franklin delano roosevelt and it seems like you get in and you only serve 2 years and then you run for office so that's kind that's of like right. the uh that's kind of the fast track to the White House is to run for governor of New York and then only serve two years.
0: Absolutely. You have Teddy uh, Roosevelt. You have uh, Grover Cleveland served just a year. Uh, Martin Van Buren served a very short time. So it's, it was, it's always really been, like you said, a stepping stone of the White House. And I think him with his just huge popularity as this person who kind of had a very easy love from both parties, would have been a kind of a healing force for the country. He, of course, lived in New York City, and he would have been there during the terrorist attacks, and he probably would have been able to speak eloquently about that and would have been a person I think the country would have loved and respected in, in his
1: administration
0: as governor. And it would have been an uh, easy win for him.
1: It, it had also been discussed, uh, I think it was suggested to him, you point out in your book, Exploding the truth, the um, the, the governor of the, at the time, the outgoing governor, uh, D'Amato, had suggested that John run for mayor of New York City. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he take that,
0: uh, was, Yeah, he was a senator from New York, and he was leaving, and he said, why not run for mayor? And JFK confided to him and to his friends that he'd had never have a mayor become president. He didn't have a much higher platform than that so that right there indicated he was seeking and seek the presidency pretty soon and the stepping stone would of course be governor of new york which is what he had his sights on so he was no threat to the Clintons. he was in fact his temperament was i think because he ran george magazine i think the senate would have been too boring for him he wanted to be a manager of things a leader of men and women so i think being governor of new york really appealed to him a lot
1: right i said governor damato you're right senator damato alphonse damato now but why the decision uh to run because he had resisted for so long when did he first decide yeah i'm going to i'm going to run for public life i mean we we assume okay you're a kennedy at some point you're going to run for office somewhere but he he had resisted for so long right when did he, he decide starts,
0: he starts talking about this in the spring of 1999 and he talks about this with his friends what do you think and it seemed at that point in time his wife had got to be okay with it. I think once she gave the okay, then it was it was all systems go. It was a matter of where he would pick to go forward from there. It'd be Senate or Governor, and they ruled out Senate for the reason I just mentioned. So that left Governor, and I think that's where he made the decision. The two options would have been one or the other. He's from New York State, obviously, so that's where path forward would have been from him. So he felt that he had done all he really could. With George Magazine, he was going to use the presidency to open up an investigation into his father's assassination. That was why he wanted to run for president too. He talked about that with his friends as well. In fact, in uh, in his early life as a teenager, he had talked about this with his first girlfriend, Meg Azioni, in high school. That he had really serious doubts about the official version of events of his father's death. So it had been a thing with him for quite a long time, questioning the Warren Commission
1: and wasn 't scared off by the fact that his uncle Robert Kennedy had uh, sort of had the same idea that that he would run for president and, and investigate his brother 's assassination and obviously he paid the the ultimate price as well so um, I wanted to just ask you about we 're heading into a break here shortly, but George magazine now at the time uh, he was he was in financial trouble. Uh, I recall he, he flew up uh, to Button Airport uh, in Markham, not far from where I'm sitting, mm-hmm. um, maybe a couple of weeks before the crash. He was looking for, I don't know if he was looking for investors or whether he was looking to unload the magazine. What was the status of George Magazine at that time?
0: Right. His his business partner, Gary Ginsberg, he said that there were two things on his mind that last two months of his life. Uh, he was going to try to sell the magazine and try to run for office. That's what he was positioning himself for doing. And if he could just sell the magazine, that could give him a chance to focus on his ideas of running for governor. So that's right. He was trying to get investors to keep the magazine going. And he also had confided that perhaps an article about the Bush connection to the assassination could help the magazine do um, better sales too. So he, of course, named the magazine George because he felt the connection was there between George H.W. Bush and the Kennedy assassination. So that's what was on his mind at the end of his life. There were several things.
1: And most people just assume, because I remember one of the, the earliest covers of George magazine was um, model Cindy Crawford wearing a powdered wig uh, dressed up as George Washington. Right. Uh, so it, it, he was he was being very clever, I guess, not playing his hand. Most people, or for public consumption, the idea was that George was named after the founding father of the United States. But on the inside, people understood it was a dig at Poppy Bush, forty-one.
0: Absolutely, and we can talk about the connections there after the break. And he, there are several connections that and reasons why the kennedy family and the bush family were at opposite ends of the spectrum in terms of their their anger the rivalry and jfk jr was i think in the crosshairs and and as many kennedys were because of the cia's anger at him at his father and his brother too and i think he got he was got the same treatment as they got too
1: all right john we'll uh, come back and uh, dive into that precisely John Kerner, author of Exploding the Truth, the JFK Jr. Assassination. Phone calls begin at the top of the hour. Back with more of The Conspiracy Show. My name is Richard Serrett. Stay with us. Corporations, governments, and sometimes entire civilizations. What goes up must come down. And it lands on The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Welcome back. John Kerner stays with us. He is with us for the full two hours. The book is Exploding the Truth, the JFK Jr. Assassination. Before we uh, jump into the uh, the George uh, Herbert Walker Bush connection here uh, and uh, you're telling us 100 percent that George magazine was named uh, as a dig to to, uh, to George H.W. Bush. Uh, I mean, how do we know that for certain? I mean, has, was that ever stated categorically or we, I mean, I believe it, uh, but but how do we know for sure?
0: I think the reasons are pretty clear because after we get to the point where we get to the end of 1999, he has told two different investigators that I talk about in the book that he's ready to uncover the conspiracy to kill his father and he's going to point the finger at poppy bush he and it's told specifically to two different investigators and looking at the evidence here you go back into his own life he'd been questioning things as far back as the late 1970s and when he's in high school he, he's in the same high school that george w bush went to high school too at the same time and I also want to mention that if you go back in the late 19, early 1960s, there are a number of connections that really prove the anger that the Kennedy family and the Bush family had against each other. And one important thing we can point out is this oil depletion allowance that JFK was trying to eliminate that was going to really ruin all of the fortunes of all the oil men in, in Texas, including George Poppy Bush. And that's one of the many reasons why there is this effort to take out the president in Dallas in 1963.
1: All right. So uh, George Herbert Walker Bush has the distinction of being maybe one of only two or three people on the planet uh, who always said he never remembered where he was on November 22nd, 1963. I think the other was Richard Nixon. Uh, so likely they were both in that, in that meeting with Clint Murchison and LBJ and so forth the night before. However. Right. Um, and then of course there is this very, uh, a popular, grainy photograph of what looks like it could be a very young George Herbert Walker Bush in the vicinity of the, uh, of Daily Plaza on November 22nd, 1963. It's not right. definitive proof, but what what is the evidence that George Herbert Walker Bush was in fact in the F, or in the CIA in 63? It comes from a Hoover memo, right?
0: Right. There's also the fact that Jim Garrison finds out that he was arrested by the Dallas Police Department at, in Dealey Plaza and he was in Dallas Police headquarters right after the assassination. So Garrison found that out. And we also have the photograph of him in front of the school book depository. And we also know the night before he was at a hotel in Dallas making a speech about his oil company, Zapata. So he's in Dallas and you, we probably know, as he said that night he was at Point Merchantson's house with the other oil men planning the assassination. So he's, he's around the area. and so we, we have photographic evidence. we have him making the speech. We have him arrested from Jim Garrison's you know evidence. So he's in the area. There's no doubt about it. And we also know that there's motive for him, as we said, to want President Kennedy dead because JFK was going to end the whole depletion allowance, which is going to just ruin the profits of all these oil men. And also we know that Poppy Bush helped plan the Pigs invasion. He was one of the people who got the ships named Houston and Barbara, for example. So this man was part of the whole series of men in the agency, because of the Bay of Pigs invasion, because of all the patient allowance, they wanted the president dead. Just, you know, basic history here, from their perspective of the agency, why they wanted the president to be eliminated.
1: Right. Now, talk to me about this Hoover memo.
0: Right. So, there is this memo that George Herbert Walker Bush makes a phone call from Tyler, Texas, and he claims that this one person in Tyler, Texas, helped plan the assassination. But this person that he pins on the assassination was never involved with any kind of conspiracy to kill President Kennedy. He was at home the entire time. The person was probably mentally ill. And this all this does was try to put Bush in an area that he wasn't in. He tries to say he was in Tyler, Texas at the time when, in fact, we know he was in Dealey Plaza Plaza. He was arrested. He was photographed. All it was meant to do was give him an alibi, and Hoover was part of the plan to do this.
1: Now, it's always been claimed, or George Herbert Walker Bush claimed, or someone on his behalf claimed that it was a different George Bush that was in the CIA, that Hoover right. was referring to another Bush, a George William Bush.
0: Right. And this George William Bush, when he found that out, got himself a lawyer and got himself a notary and made sure everyone knew that it it was it was definitely not him. He went through a a specific detailed explanation of how it could not have been George William Bush. So that's in the book, too. So this man found out about this and he said, no, it was definitely George Walker Bush,
1: not him. So this George William Bush who George Herbert Walker Bush claimed was the actual Bush mentioned in the Hoover memo, basically went to a lawyer and swore out an affidavit, or had an affidavit yeah. sworn out.
0: He did, yeah. He said there's no way it could have been him. He was nowhere near Dealey Plaza. He would not handle that kind of intelligence information. He just, there's nothing about this that could have connected him to the to that. So he, he got himself a lawyer and an affidavit and swore to
1: this. So... What was Bush then doing in Daily Plaza? He wanted to make sure the deed was done? I mean, do we know... Just because he was there isn't necessarily proof positive that he was involved. So,
0: Right. Uh, that's, that's a good point. So we have to make the observation that it doesn't really matter why he's there. It just matters that JFK Jr. wanted to find out more about it, investigate it. So because he's telling his friends, investigators, that he wants to use his magazine and the presidency to reopen an investigation and point the finger at the Bush family that makes him a target. And he also is a rival to his son, George Herbert Walker Bush's son, George W. Bush, the presidency. So these are things that make him, that give him motive to be killed by the CIA. So we also can point out, I think there's also... An extension here of the agency's continued anger at JFK, just by the fact they wanted to kill his son over continued anger at the Bay of Pigs invasion, the drug trade in Laos, ending the Vietnam War. It just is an extension of their targeting of the family itself, even forgetting about the fact and anything about new investigations, to the Bush family. I think it's just more of a pattern to to kill more Kennedys because that's just what the agency tends to do. They just do this to the, all three of the brothers. They targeted Teddy Kennedy too, they to targeted Robert Kennedy, and of course JFK.
1: So George Magazine launches in in 1995, four years before John's death. Had he always intended to use George Magazine as a platform to expose? I mean, was he looking at doing uh, some investigative pieces and publishing them? And and if so, why didn't he?
0: I think he, he makes his first attempt and at, at, at all this when he publishes this article that details a conspiracy to kill Yitzhak Rabin. Not written by him, but published in his magazine. That was his first attempt to test the waters, to see how it would be received by the public, that kind of reporting in his magazine. I think that was the first step he took to see if that could be well-received, if he could continue to live if if he would be targeted so that comes out in march of 1997 so i think that's his first attempt to make himself more respected to be able to do this for the magazine and again he was telling his friends at that point in time this is what we need to do we need more serious reporting this kind of thing is what magazine needs to start doing
1: so they they were waiting, though obviously for that smoking gun. They they needed something very concrete. I mean, <laughs> you, you you don't take on the, the Bush dynasty uh, in in a magazine without having them basically pretty much dead to rights. I would imagine. Right,
0: you'd have to have several years of research. You need the power of the presidency itself, really, to be able to get that done. And going back to Bobby Kennedy. I mean, he had confided in his friends that the first day of the assassination, he approaches the director of the agency and says, I know you did this, so I'm going to prove it. So he spends the next several years doing his own investigation. visits Mexico City, for example, talks to other researchers for the assassination. He concludes that the agency, of course, killed his brother, and he was going to use the power of the presidency to reopen an investigation, probably hold trials for treason, and the Vietnam War, and we all know how that turned out, so... This is the same approach that his uncle had tried in 1968, and the result was the same. And I think if you look at even Teddy Kennedy, you know, look at this in the book, too. There was a suspicious plane crash in the summer of 1965 where he should have died, too. This is just months after the um, the summer of '64, And months after the... Um, JFK assassination, and that plane crash killed the pilot. And Teddy Kennedy really should have died that night. It was a very strange accident. The pilot had flown that flight several times, and that looked like an assassination attempt too. So all three brothers were targeted, and it seems like this is more of an extension of that. Even the date itself we could talk about too was unusual. July sixteenth.
1: How is that? How is that uh, peculiar? What is that interesting about that date?
0: Well, we can go back, uh, you know, 30 years. That same weekend was Chaparrquitic, and I think another researcher thinks too that was set up to destroy Kennedy's political career, so he would never be president in 1972. So, you know, there's that, which is uh, look at in the book as well. But there's also going back even further in time, July 16th of 1961, JFK. June, JFK Sr., starts an affair with Mary Cord Meyer, ex-wife of, of course, Cord Meyer. And that was a very provocative thing the president did when he started that affair, which E. Howard Hunt says Cord Meyer was one of the men who planned the assassination. And one reason was this bitterness of this ongoing affair with this, this very serious affair, really, with Mary Cord Meyer that began that day, July 16th. So it seems like that date, that weekend, it, it's, it's just, is it a coincidence? I don't know. It's unusual. We also know that July 16th of 1945 was when the first nuclear explosion took place in the American Southwest, the Mahat Project, and many of the men from there went under the CIA. So it's a very proud day for them, very unusual day, July 16th. It's a very strange day for all this thing to go down on.
1: Fascinating. All right, John, we're going to open up the phone lines in the next hour, take questions and comments, and we'll continue to explore the assassination of John F. Kennedy, Jr. Back with more of my conversation with John Kerner right here on The Conspiracy Show. Stay with us.